Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new edition, a new episode of my podcast, Grit Stories of Resilience. This is the newest one I have done, and I'm happy to be with you this week. It's titled Imagine. Grit, Stories of Resilience, and True Crime. Yes, this is going to have an addition at the second part of the podcast, talking about true crime in general, and an overview or a preview or a preamble of the Jeffrey McDonald case in particular. This all goes back to early June of this year, when I met a friend of mine, Patrice Nealon, who's a very popular professor at NC State in marketing classes. She has for a number of years taught one of the most creative and successful and popular courses that State offers. And so I met with her at a Starbucks in Raleigh to talk about how I could improve my podcast, which I had just started a couple of months before, and how I could get more people to listen. And she smiled and had a cup of coffee and looked at me and said, Jim, I have a marketing class that's going to start in late August or first September. How would you how would you like to be a client? I had done this once before a number of years ago with her. So I understood what she meant by being a client. That is to say, I would go before her class, make a brief presentation in person of what I was hoping to accomplish, what I wanted to do, and what help I wanted from them. They, in turn, would talk among themselves and decide, not in my presence, whether or not they wished to go with me. I was not the only one there to make such a presentation. So I went early September and uh, spoke before a class and told them a little bit about myself, told them about my podcast, Grit, Stories of Resilience, why I'd chosen that name and what I was hoping to accomplish, how many people I had talked to, some of the analytics of who had listened, where they were coming from when they had listened. And I also had thought about, you know, a second podcast in the very popular genre of true crime which is one of the most popular genres in podcasting and ever growing. And the only claim I suppose I thought I had to be capable of doing such a podcast would be to perhaps do a finite number of programs, not unlimited, on the Jeffrey McDonald case. The problem with that, of course, is that the McDonald case has been well documented in books, uh, television interviews, television shows, documentaries for the last 40 or 50 years. It is well plowed ground. But the one thing that perhaps I have touched on in some of my interviews with people about this case, but never in great detail, is the McDonald case as it was related to me. What it was like to be a young federal 
prosecutor with not that much, some, but not that much trial experience against some of the best in a high stake case, high stakes case, that when I joined the United States Attorney's Office in the fall of 1977, absolutely no one in the office thought we would ever win. Indeed, most of the people there thought it would never even come to trial. It was one of those cases just sort of sat around the office and everybody talked about it, interested in it, but that it was a fantasy to think that it would ever happen. After making my presentation to Patrice Newland's class, I learned a few days later that seven or eight teams of five students each had wished to participate in helping me develop marketing strategies for my podcasts. Half of them would be in the digital marketing classes and the other half would be in the feasibility of doing a study with a totally blank slate on the Jeffrey McDonald case. These students did not know anything about the Jeffrey McDonald case. They're young, but they're very talented. They're very smart. They're very ambitious, and they want to succeed. They're very engaging. And they are optimistic. How's that for some superlatives for these students? All well-deserved. Over the last seven and a half weeks, I have met with them in person at their classes, by Zoom meetings, by emails, talked to a number of them. And I want you to know if you were ever worried about the future insofar as the youth are concerned, this is a test case in how you don't have to be too concerned because they are smarter and brighter certainly than I am and probably most of us over the age of 30 or 35 of which I've not been that age for quite some time. So I went this past week to an afternoon class starting at one o'clock, not getting through till after four o'clock, where I listened to four different teams, five students each, get in front of the room in the presentation at a classroom and make slide presentations to me. As, and I would sit there and listen. They sent the slides to me generally 20 to 25 slides a piece on a feasibility study and whether it was worthwhile to even consider doing such a podcast. Their conclusion, somewhat tentative at first, but going more convinced as they went through it, was yes, it was possible and something for me to do. They haven't come up yet with a marketing strategy for it. This was simply the first part. But, you know, I said to them in the classroom that the McDonald case is old. It happened, for goodness sakes, in 
February of 1970. The trial was over 40 years ago in 1979. These kids had not been thought of, much less born, in 1979. So what would be the market? Was I going to reach out to older people, their grandparents, for goodness sakes, or maybe their parents, more likely their grandparents, who would remember this case? It had been the longest-running federal criminal case in United States history, and it ended actually only two or three years ago when the United States Supreme Court denied certiorari or discretionary review to a ruling by the Fourth Circuit uh, dismissing the McDonald appeals. And indeed, the latest ruling from the Fourth Circuit indicated that Jeffrey McDonald's time for appealing this case based on the allegations that he had, he had heretofore raised were coming to an end. Because Patrice Nealon had another class of students to talk with, she asked one of the students to walk me out of the building. We walked up the steps, this young lady student and I, talking about the McDonald case and the podcasting. We stood outside for just a very few minutes and I expressed to her my my concern that um, it was old and would this work? And she looked at me and smiled and said, you know, Jim, students and the young are to you a blank slate. You can write on it whatever you wish or you can. You can start out with the understanding that they do not know anything about it. But if your storytelling is good, if the case is interesting, it might catch on. You should try. I left that day with a sense of optimism. I had gone that afternoon at one o'clock with a sense of I had no idea whatsoever they were going to say. Indeed, I thought they might say, we need to shut this down. Rather, they said the opposite. We should open this up. So it is with that understanding and background that I get into, for just a few minutes in this podcast, a preamble, perhaps a beginning of the McDonald case. In February 1970, when the crimes occurred on the 17th of that month, three days after Valentine's, I was a young lawyer in the state attorney general's office. I was not a trial lawyer. I had never heard of Jeffrey McDonald. I read about it some later that summer in the summer of 1970, when the News and Observer, the Raleigh paper, would carry some articles about the military hearing that was taking place at Fort Bragg. I remember reading a few years later in 1975 in the same paper that he had, in fact, been indicted by a grand jury for murder. But other than that, I really gave the McDonald case 
almost zero thought. It was not something that was on my radar. I didn't think I was going to be a trial lawyer. Indeed, I did not know what kind of lawyer I was going to be at all, actually. And it was only until five or six years later, after 1970, as I've told you in a previous podcast, that I ever tried my first jury trial. Oh, I would argue cases before the appellate courts, the Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court in North Carolina. And those were challenging, exciting, and interesting, and a little bit scary. But there were nothing like trying a jury trial. There's absolutely nothing in this world like trying a jury trial. And you would think that you might be in front of 12 citizens in a jury in a criminal case. They don't know anything about the case. You know much more about it than they do. So you should not be afraid. You would be wrong. There is nothing quite so terrifying or challenging as putting your best shot forward in front of 12 people who are a blank slate insofar as their knowledge of the case is concerned, and you're trying to compete against somebody else on the other side, and you want to win. That's a challenge. But I'm getting ahead of myself. On a cold, rainy, early morning hours, the night of February the 17th, 1970, a phone call was placed from the home of 544 Castle Drive, Jeffrey McDonald's residence, asking for help. The people had been hurt in his house. Indeed, he had been hurt. And he wanted help and medical attention as quickly as possible. The phone call was short. It was brief. And he dropped the phone receiver. Quickly, the MPs, a number of them, maybe eight to ten, descended on the McDonald apartment, coming from many different directions, driving in their Jeeps quickly. Of course, they went to the front door of the apartment. It was a brick apartment. It was an end unit. The McDonald family all lived on one floor, though there was an upstairs belonging to the adjacent um, building, adjacent family that lived there. The McDonald's were all, in, all on one floor. There were three bedrooms, a large one, a master bedroom, and two very small bedrooms on the either side of a narrow hallway. The living room, which opened up into a small dining room and a very small kitchen. They, they got to the front door and tried to open it, and it was locked. The lights were off, and somewhat flummoxed, they ran around as quickly as they could to the side, the house and to the back door, which was open and unlocked to the best of my recollection. They, they walked inside slowly, I might add, because they did not know if anybody else was in the house, if the assailants who had the intruders or whatever, whoever it was that had committed some offense were there. They did not know what they would find. They didn't know how many people were there. They didn't know anything. The first person who went inside was a brave young man named Richard Tavere. Richard is still with us, lives in New York City, 
but not New York City, but New York State today, and remembers the case well. He was the first MP, went in with his flashlight, through first a utility room, and then the master bedroom, where he saw this lady laying on the floor, outstretched, eyes upward in her pink two-piece pajamas. A male lay next to her, his head near her. The woman appeared not to be moving or having any life in her, but he didn't know. He didn't check her pulse at that point or do anything like that. One of the other MPs, Sergeant Micah, leaned over McDonald and asked him who had done this to him. This is the first time that McDonald, to my knowledge, ever told anyone else his story in brief, that intruders had come into the house that night, had attacked him and his family. And then he said, check my kids. I've got kids. Check them. This is the first time they knew that there were any other people in the house besides these two people. So very carefully, somewhat gingerly, they walked down this narrow hallway, appeared into the two rooms opposite each other, flicked on the light switch with a pin so as not to touch it or contaminate it in any way. And they saw two young children, apparently female, laying lifeless in their beds. By this time, the frightening ratio went way up. They continued their walk down the hall to the living room. They did not know whether anyone else was there hiding ready to attack them. There was no one else, either in the living room, the dining room, or the kitchen. It was just the MPs, and these two adults, and these two young children, three of whom appeared to be lifeless, and one of whom still alive. Sometime later, not too much longer, Two agents, Bill Ivory and Bob Shaw, arrived from the Army Criminal Investigative Division, often referred to as the CID. They came, took charge of the investigation over the MPs. The MPs were no longer in charge of anything. They, they needed to identify the people. They didn't know who they were. And so they had gotten McDonald out of the apartment, placed on a gurney, taken to the hospital, Womack Army Hospital, for treatment. They knocked on the door of a adjoining or adjacent apartment. The husband and father who lived there came down in his bathrobe, answered the door, 
they asked him if he could come next door and help them identify some people who were not doing well in the McDonald apartment. He did so, of course, at once. Went to the various rooms and said, that's Colette McDonald. That's Kimberly McDonald. And that's Kristen McDonald. I don't know if those were exact words, but that's the essence of what he said. He didn't stay long and, and left the apartment. In the following couple of days, an FBI agent named Robert Caverly, perhaps along with others, interviewed McDonald in a brief session from his hospital room at Womack. Essentially, Jeffrey McDonald said this story. He was asleep on a sofa in the living room. He was there sleeping because one of his daughters had wet his side of the bed that night. And rather than waking everybody else up to change the sheets, he simply slept on the sofa. At some point, he was awakened by intruders in the house. He heard his wife saying, Jeff, 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 why are they doing this to me? He heard Kimberly, his older daughter, not quite seven years old, screaming, Daddy, 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 Daddy. Those would be the last words he ever heard her say, at least so far as we know. And the last words that Colette ever said, at least so far as we know. In the living room where McDonald was, there were four people, three males and a female. Each of the males was armed. One had a club, one had an ice pick, and one had a knife, a paring knife. The woman, he said, stood at the end of the sofa. She was wearing a floppy hat, had on high-top boots, and holding a light flickering as though it were a candle. And she was chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. He was struck. He defended himself. During the struggle, his pajama top was pulled over his head. It was torn. It was an old pajama top, been washed many times. Into the... At some point, he, he said he passed out. When he woke up at the entry to the hallway from the living room, the place was quiet and dark. He got up, walked back to where the other bedrooms were. The uh, intruders had gone. He checked his wife. He took his pajama top off of him. They had been wrapped around his hands and wrists. 
and, and placed it on her body, or at least part of her body, though the one of the sleeves would be draped off of her body onto the floor. He said he did this in order to keep her warm. It, of course, would have her blood type, type A, on the pajama type. He said that there was a knife that was protruding from her chest. And so he, he pulled it out of her chest and threw it on the floor. He got up, walked to the other two bedrooms, and found Kimberly, Kristen, checked on them, and realized they were dead. And he called for help. That is essentially what he told Bob Cavalli, the FBI agent. Not word for word, perhaps, but that's the that's the thrust of it. Investigation into the McDonald murders started immediately. It hit the national press. You can imagine what the local press and the federal newspaper was saying. People were terrified. In Fedful and surrounding counties, the killers were on the loose and might attack again, much as they had done, you know, in the Manson murders, which had occurred six months before in 1969. Gun sales went up. Locks were changed. People wanted to be safe. They wanted the killers to be caught. And an all-clear sight signal would go out. That signal did not go out right away. There was no statement by the law enforcement that all was okay and we could return to normal. There was none of that. In a slow, somewhat painstaking investigation of the physical home of the McDonald family was underway with photographs taken, fingerprints taken, of the house, see who was there. Blood samples were taken. There was a lot of blood. Blood was massively in the master bedroom, on the bed in the uh, Kimberly's room where she lay, and in Kristen's room as well. There was not much blood in the living room where the McDonald said his struggle had taken place. There was a speck of blood on his eyeglasses, which were found in the living room. There were some droplets of blood in the entryway to the master bedroom on the floor. There was what appeared to be a bloody footprint exiting, leaving Kristen's bedroom. And there were some droplets of blood on the floor in the kitchen. Underneath, right in front of the cabinets, underneath the kitchen sink, in the storage area, which had contained some latex gloves. Well, 
they went through the nap of the carpet in the living room, hoping to find or looking to find threads which might have fallen from the pajama top that McDonald said had been torn there. They, they didn't find any. As a matter of fact, I believe my memory is correct that the only thing much that they found there was one or two pieces of Christmas tinsel from a Christmas tree Christmas a couple of months earlier. But they did find lots of threads. No analysis of these threads had yet been done. So they didn't know at that point where they came from. But dozens of these threads in the master bedroom. Indeed, if my memory serves me correct, they were found near the body of Colette McDonald as well. Some threads were also found on the bed, underneath the covers, in Kimberly's room. All very puzzling. It was a question that these agents, Bill Ivory and Bob Shaw, would ask of each other and to themselves, and perhaps share with other investigative agents, I don't know, of the questions that they had, and why it was that no threads were found in the living room, yet they were found in the master bedroom. That did not fly with the statement by McDonald of where his pajama top had in fact been torn. In one of the ironies of this case, his pajama bottoms were taken off and destroyed at the hospital. But his pajama top, which he left on Colette's chest, was not taken to the hospital and was not destroyed. Over the following weeks, the agents collected a, a lot of stuff, a lot of evidence, the importance of which they did not yet know, but had some thoughts. The threads, things of that nature were taken, put in plastic bags, and sealed for analysis by the labs at the CID, or the Criminal Investigative Division of the Army. Same with the photographs and the blood samples and the fingerprints. These would all be examined and poured over in the following weeks. McDonald, meanwhile, was still free to go about the Army base. He had not been charged with any crime or anything like that. He, on the afternoon of April the 26th, just a little over two months after the deaths of his family, went to the office of invest one of the investigators' chief, Mr. Grebner, Forrest Grebner. He walked in, and Bill Ivory and Bob Shaw, the other two agents, were sitting there. They had a tape recorder, an old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, and they wanted to interview McDonald some more, and they wanted to record it. McDonald thought he was going just to maybe figure out how he could get some remaining items of his apartment and leave. 
had sat down willingly and answered their questions. As the question went on, it apparently began to dawn on McDonald that these were not all friendly questions. And he asked, and I'm not quoting exactly, but he asked generally, it seemed as though they were directing their questions at him, thinking perhaps that he was involved in the deaths, which could not possibly be true. They said they just, just had some more questions they had to clear up in order to figure out how to close this investigation. One of them, I, I think it was Mr. Grabner, told Jeffrey McDonald that if he would be willing to take a polygraph and pass it, they would turn away from him he would not be a person of interest, and he'd be free to go. He agreed to do so. Sometime later, I think that same day, word got back to the Army investigators that McDonald was going to decline any polygraph examination and say, no, he would not take it. And even further later that day, public word came out that he was indeed a person of interest and was going to be charged as a suspect in the deaths of his wife, Colette, and his two daughters, Kimberly and Kristen. No one could know at that time what the future of this case and this investigation would hold. No one could possibly have known that the Army would charge him. In the summer, they would have the longest preliminary hearing or Article 32 hearing that the Army had had up to that point, the conclusion of which they would decide that the charges were not true against him, that he would the, the Colonel Rock, who was in charge of the proceedings, would declare that the charges were not true and they should investigate further, focusing on a woman named Helena Stokely, who was a young hippie woman in the federal area as a suspect. Perhaps she was the woman there at the foot of the sofa. No one could know that the investigation would go on for two or three more years, that it would come to the same conclusion that McDonald was, in fact, the one responsible. Still, there was no indictment. There was no federal criminal charge. There was a concern that it was a circumstantial evidence case. They did not have a clear motive. They did not think the chances of a conviction were very high. It was not until August of 1974 that Freddie Kassab, no longer a friend and ally of Jeffrey McDonald, as he had once been, would turn on him and ask Judge Butler, the chief judge at the time of the Eastern District of North Carolina, he lived in Clinton, to convene a special grand jury on this case. And it would be in the early 1975, within five years of the murders, that Jeffrey McDonald would be indicted for murder on three counts. 
that a trial would be set for the summer of 1975. It would be stayed a few weeks before trial by the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit would eventually decide that he had been denied the right to a speedy trial, even though he had not been indicted in the 1970s. That ruling in a two-to-one decision would be appealed in a discretionary request, a writ for certiorari to the United States Supreme Court, which would eventually hear the case in open court and rule against McDonald and send the back case back to Raleigh, North Carolina for trial. It would be tried in the summer of 1979, beginning in July and ending not long before Labor Day. The main prosecutor, the main investigating prosecutor, Victor Warhadi, who did the grand jury investigation, would die of a heart attack before the trial ever began. The second assistant U.S. attorney, Jay Stroud, would leave the U.S. attorney's office and not be available for, for the prosecution. Indeed, in the summer, or the, I'm sorry, in the fall of 19. 77 in October, when I joined the assistant, joined the U.S. attorney as an assistant U.S. attorney, there was no prosecutor. The case was not even active in Raleigh. It was on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court and would not come back for a long time. I'll get into in a subsequent podcast how it came to be that I was the, going to be the prosecutor. It's a little bit like the game we all played as children of musical chairs. And the question is, who is still standing when the music stops? The music stopping in this case was when the U.S. Supreme Court sent the case back for trial. And the only one standing was me. And, of course, a good friend whom I did not yet know at that time, Brian Murtaugh. He was a staff attorney in the criminal division of the United States Justice Department in Washington, D.C. And it would essentially be Brian and myself who would get together and become the two teams, the team of two people, along with some others, along with the best agents and investigators you could possibly find with the FBI and the CID to prosecute Jeffrey McDonald. This is the story of the beginning of this case. Even in 1975, when he was indicted, I still did not know much about Jeffrey McDonald. I had no idea that this person would become, for a short time, really, a short time, in the sum, one summer, so critical to the rest of my legal career. Even today, I get emails and questions about this case that happened more than 40 years ago. It, of course, was not the only trial that I ever participated in, but if it is the most well-known one. It is complex. It has so much in it. It's a circumstantial evidence case. DNA was not available at that time. It would turn out that all members of the family had a different blood type, all four of them. There's a case of betrayal. 
betrayal by McDonald, in my opinion at least, of the deaths of his family. So I hope to establish over the next period of time a podcast on this case and my involvement in it and what it was like to be there. That won't be the next episode, but this is a prelude, a preliminary showing of what might become available. I hope you have enjoyed it. I know it is different. It's not necessarily upbeat. It is, however, a story of persistence, a story of grit. For McDonald appealed this case so many times, and the United States Justice Department, through so many people, not me, so many lawyers, persisted, persisted in answering his motions, his appeals, arguing the case, and they are there until the last dog dies. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking with you again next week.